brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. I'm Matt. And I'm Nate. And this is Not Quite Religious, a podcast where a Christian pastor and former evangelical turned atheist have conversations about faith, religion, philosophy, and life while drinking coffee. Welcome to episode 18, where we talk about uh, a video that Matt watched on Schopenheimer and possibly Dr. Horrible sing-along <laughs> blog. And also, um, so remember how a few weeks ago we were talking about how like elevator music would be great? Uh-huh. Yeah, we can do this. Waiting. Um, it it's on the podcast. We don't have oh, headphones in, so we can't hear I it. See but it. Um, yeah, it turns out we have these effects that we can do. <laughs> oh, good. So, yeah, fun times. So now there's like elevator music in the background. There's, while we're talking. I think there's like um, cheering. There's some sort of sound effect. I forget which one I pushed. I okay. discovered it the other day. Okay, so it just ha- it just did it, a, it, sound, a cheering sound effect. Yeah, for something. A second. Yeah. Well, these are the cheering ones. Yay. I gotcha. Man, this show is great so far. <laughs> um, it's it's not Schopenheimer. It's Schopenhauer. Yeah. Arthur Schopenhauer is a, a 19th century German philosopher, as they seem to all be, or at least the ones that, that I read. Um, uh, was a big influence on a more famous philosopher known as uh, Friedrich Nietzsche if you've, you've ever heard of him um, yeah so I was uh, I was reading watching listening to the things about Schopen- Schopenhauer and I uh, I came across something about his take on Christianity that resonated with mine and, and resonated with some things I was trying to say I think all the way back in episode two or three <laughs> Whatever that one was where we were talking about why Christianity is beautiful. Mm. Um, and I re-listened to, to it this morning uh, on my drive down here. And, of course, the second time you listen to something is always it's always different. You get a different yeah. impression almost, uh, whether, whether you watch or listen, whatever it is. Um, it didn't quite have the... The second listen didn't quite have the same emotional impact maybe it's because it was the second listen Mm. maybe it was because i'm in a different place than i was like two months ago which i tend to be which is probably frustrating to people who want something systematic from me um (laughs) tend to be (laughs) all over the place um tossed about by every wave of wind and doctrine um but but still I think I can give a pretty good summation of what Schopenhauer's view of Christianity is as versus um, Buddhism and um, and Hinduism and his view of the Old Testament versus the New Testament. And I think just explaining that will be pretty good fodder for for an entire episode. Sounds we, good. We may or may not get to Dr. Horrible's sing-along vlog. We might have to just make it another um, episode. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, 
So basically, um, Schopenhauer says that the way to think about religion is not in terms of theisms. So theism, monotheism, pantheism, atheism, pantheism, panentheism, all these theisms. This is the best, the best way to think about it in order to get at the truth of it is to think about it in terms of whether it has a pessimistic or uh, optimistic worldview. Or whether its worldview is essentially pessimistic or optimistic. And then later he'll talk about idealism versus realism. Uh, and what he has to say about Christianity is that um, Christianity is... Well, let me start. Actually, let me start with Buddhism. He, Buddhism and, and Hinduism for him are, are religions that are essentially pessimistic. Hmm. Which for him means they're, they're closer to true. <laughs> um, he uh, he says he says Buddhism is the, is the closest religion to the truth uh, that there is. Um, but but he gives some credence to Christianity, and he does so by comparing Christianity to Judaism, um, which he, which he admits Christianity is complicated by its um, affiliation, its inextricable affiliation to Judaism. Like they share the same scripture. So in some sense, they they can't be... You can't talk about one without talking about yeah. the other. Well, you can't talk about Christianity without talking about Judaism. Right. You probably could talk about Judaism without... Yeah, 100%. Yeah. So, um, so he says Judea, Judaism is um, an essentially optimistic worldview. Uh, and he... He relates this in particular to uh, the point about um, it's a material point. So in other words, Judaism's tenet in Schopenhauer's mind is right there in Genesis 1, God saw everything that he was made and behold it was good. And So the, so in Judaism, the material world is good. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, the, the fall is, um, is sort of what what messed things up. Um, and that's that's interesting, if questionable, theology, but it, it it's an interesting framework, and I, I, I don't know how far I want to go into that because I don't think our podcast is a, is a, a deep dive into <laughs> any one particular religion, but that it's an interesting take. Insofar as Judaism wants to affirm that the material and the real is essentially good I think that that's true yeah and I also think Judaism recognizes that that's a paradoxical thing thing to say so that's why there's that's why Judaism is more like a dialogue than it is anything else mm. because they're fundamentally resting on the paradox of the material world that God made is good God is good and yet they're suffering yeah and so that's the constant dialogue um, where he says Christianity slash the New Testament uh is uh, is the is the solution to that um, optimism to that problem, <laughs> and it's essentially pessimism in that it affirms it's the the cross of Christ is the ultimate affirmation in Schopenhauer's mind that the material world actually is bad. Otherwise, Christ wouldn't have to have have died for it. Hmm. Um, so, that, in a sense, there's almost like that's the end of dialogue, and that's my own thought. That's not what he's saying. I'm just kind of riffing yeah. at that point. 
It's, it's an interesting. It's an interesting take. So he thinks that Christianity is the, the nail in the coffin of yeah. Dialogue. Well, so. <laughs> maybe it's interesting. Um, that's not his point, though. His point, though, is one of the things. What he likes about Christianity and what why he prefers it to Judaism is that Christianity is rooted in a more real take, which is that the material world is actually bad, mm-hmm. uh, which he says is. Um, you know, is a, is a more realistic take, and and yet he feels like Hinduism and Buddhism both give a um, a more uh, full and all encompassing and deeper have have a deeper understanding of of uh, what it means to live in a material world that is um, that is essentially bad. So, like, where for Christianity. This material world is temporary, but still real. Yeah. In in the Eastern religions, it's the material world is illusory. Right. And um, and he thinks that makes makes it better. Uh, and and so that's a summation of of his philosophy, and or his philosophy of religion. And that's what I that's what I heard the second time, I went through it. And I think I the first time I went through it, I was projecting some of my own stuff, and that's why I was so excited about it. Mm. Especially the idea of uh, of of Jesus being um, th- this idea of Jesus being the end of dialogue. I mean, I guess I'm not. I, I shouldn't strike anybody as the kind of person that's excited about the end of dialogue, but <laughs> this this idea of Jesus as an answer. Yeah. To the to a problem of suffering, and that the starting point is suffering, as a point to the, as opposed to the starting point being everything that God made is good. Mm-hmm. I think that that corresponds with something of the idea that I was peddling at the at the beginning, as, as in terms of like how to approach yeah. Christianity theologically and philosophically. Uh, but I'll just stop there. There's so much more I could say, but I don't want this to <laughs> turn into some kind of lecture. No, I'm... I think that's enough. Us yeah, I think I, I, I definitely remember when we were talking about the different, or attempting to, in 45 minutes, summate the beauty that we find in our worldviews. Um, and I, I definitely remember, like, at the end, you were like, no, 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 like, the, my starting point isn't God, it's suffering. Mm. And then, so almost working backwards to God, so to speak, for you. Um, yeah, I mean, so I guess my thoughts are... I don't know, I'd have to probably go back and watch the video. But it's interesting because, you know, just as you were talking, one of the things is like, well, not only is reality illusory for the Hindu and the Buddha, Buddhists, but their ultimate goal is to fully escape it, right? Where right. Like, Christian afterlife... So so Jewish afterlife, Sheol, who knows? Right. Right. Well, ask, a ra- ask a rabbi and get, a, get an answer. Let's dialogue about it. Right. What do you think? But, I mean, ultimately it's, you know, the rewards in Judaism are here and now. Like, even for Job, like, yes, God is a jerk and kills all his family, and but, like, his reward is, like, you get more. Mm-hmm. Here's more of the stuff. Like, it's definitely material. It's definitely in the present. But even then, I think there's a there's a conversation about that from within the Hebrew yeah. Scriptures. Uh, because on one hand, you can, from, from the Hebrew Scriptures, you can look at eternity as, like, as your posterity, as, like, the success of your right. children. And then there are other scriptures which just blatantly contradict that, yeah, and say 
I was reading one this morning, actually, Psalm 49, which is like uh, the only thing that the the rich have going for them is like the posterity of their children. And that's not actually like anything they get to experience personally or like it's not a good thing. And and the yeah. writer of Ecclesiastes says as much the same. It's like, who cares if I leave my wealth to people that I'm okay. never going to know? Like, I'm not going to know my progeny. So yeah. why is that some kind of blessing? So Hebrew scripture is already questioning itself. Right. But it is more focused. Like the rewards are more focused on the here and now. Like, yeah, you know, especially when you think of the law and the Torah, like if you worship me, things will go well. If you don't, things will go bad. Where Jesus is like, don't store up your treasure, like your treasures in heaven. Right. Like it's not here. That's a clear contrast. Stop, stop looking. Stop. Right. Um, And they're like, when are we going to like kick out Rome? He's like, no, 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 no. (laughs) You guys don't get it. I'm talking, he's, I'm talking about like denial. Right. And, you know? and you know, Buddhism's like, we're going to go a step further. Like, let's just join Nirvana and get the crap out of this cycle. Mm-hmm. Like we want out <laughs> where like Christianity is like, you can have a temporary out for now until it's all fixed and then you'll get it back again. Yeah. Christianity also sees redemption in suffering itself. Yeah. You know, like, so it's both a problem and a solution in Christianity. Mm. Whereas, I think in Buddhism, suffering is part of the illusion that's trying to be, that you're trying to transcend. Yeah. You're trying to get back to Yeah, well, non- you're only suffering because you're... Right. Believe in the, the illusion of reality and trying to make a name for yourself or yeah. feel hunger, like... Yeah. And then this, this past week, actually this past year, I've been reading um, this book called The Fruit of Our Lips uh, by a... Um, a rather contemporary uh, uh, German, um, German again, uh, theologian, philosopher, uh, who taught at Dartmouth um, around the middle of the 20th century, but, he, um, but he's kind of a refugee in a way from, from Nazi Germany. His grandson actually lives uh, in, um, like in Putney, Vermont, which is 15 minutes from where I live in Brattleboro. Um, and his grandson's the one that introduced me to his to his work. <laughs> like, read my granddad. <laughs> yeah. And um, it's one of those things, like, somebody gives you a book and you're like, yeah, I'll read this. And uh, and sometimes you're glad you did and sometimes you're like, oh, okay. But um, this is one of those times I'm really glad I did. <laughs> I, I was blown away by, uh, by this guy's thought. His name is, you're never going to remember it. I'm just going to say it because why not? We can rewind it. Eugen Rosenstock. I think that's how it's pronounced. That's his name. You could call him E-R-H for short. Um, but uh, uh, this interesting take that I, that I think is in conversation with what Schopenhauer was saying in, term, in, in relation to uh, Judaism and uh, Christianity, uh, especially as it pertains to the, the Gospel of Luke. But what he, what he said was, there's a really provocative quote. Let me see if I can remember it. Um, that uh, that Christ was was killed because God needed to remain in the future. I don't, I don't, I don't think I understand that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In other words, what I was saying about Christ being the end of the dialogue mm-hmm. about the about suffering. So, if the Hebrew Scriptures is a conversation about What's the afterlife? Well, it's 
it's the rewards on earth. Well, no, actually, those don't matter. Uh, why did why did God make suffering so that we could grow closer to Him? But you know, maybe it's uh, you know, maybe it doesn't matter. There's just all these conversations about about suffering and, and, and theology, and then there's the in the prophets in the Old Testament uh, pops up this idea of a of a Messiah who is it's ambiguous, but he's he's the savior but when it's like when he actually shows up and what i like about what what erh is saying is that it was is that he's he's framing it as actually a deep psychological issue rather than just a contemporary problem like the first century jews just had this bad theology about what the Messiah was supposed to do, and they thought he was going to be political, and he was really spiritual, and they were really disappointed that he wasn't the like political leader that they expected or wanted, so they crucified him. What 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 ERH is kind of saying is that um, is that the the Messiah as a concept is is difficult for a point of view that always needs salvation to be in the future. It's sort of like you have a dream. Mm-hmm. A, a dream is in like something you you want to accomplish with your life. You have this idea and this vision of uh, of who you're supposed to be, and then you finally achieve it. Like you actually achieve your dream, <laughs> and you go, "Now what?" And it's a it's a common thing with people who achieve their dream. Right. On the other side of that is depression. Yeah. So that's what he's saying is like they they crucified the Messiah because in order to uh, keep God as a hope <laughs> for the future. That sounds so radical. <laughs> well, I mean, I wouldn't put that on any official like. Right. I I wouldn't want to say to a Jewish person, "Hey, here's your theology." <laughs> yeah. No. I guess I after you unpack it, I I understand what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like hope that you have isn't hope anymore, right? Right. Right. So it, like, hope by definition has to be longed for and, and something that you're striving towards. Or I don't want to use hope to define hope, but you know, hoping for, like, <laughs> right? Like you hope for the promotion. Once you get it, it's just reality. And, right. Yeah. yeah. Um. So that's. That's interesting in relation to, you know, Schopenhauer saying that Jesus is the is the solution. It's similar to Paul saying Christ is the end of the law for all those who believe. Um, and I don't know. I just I find that to be a fascinating, fascinating idea. And I wonder. I wonder how it, and hinted at it, even though I don't think Schopenhauer went this direction at all. We're free to go on our own. Um, I wonder if that has any relationship to uh, Christianity, especially Western Christianity. Uh, maybe, maybe it's too strong to say obsession with uh, dogma. <laughs> so solutions. 
Yeah. And and the idea that dialogue is actually a preservation of hope. Because if you're talking about something, then you're not at the end of it yet. Right. So, I, I mean, are you sort of saying, like, the Western evangelical you know, obsession with systematic theology and apologetics and, like, here's the pat answer and we, you don't need to talk anymore and, like don't talk to people who play Dungeons and Dragons. Like, what, is, I think there's like 80 different trails. I'm try, just trying to figure out which one you're... Uh, I, guess it's, I guess it's so much of it. Yeah. I, it finds itself in different expressions of Christianity. Well, I mean, I think Americans, ironically, you know, we're, what, the most religious of the industrialized countries. I also yeah. think we're probably the least mystical of the industrial... Like, mm. And I say that having never mm. lived other places... Um, but like and and by mystic I, I, I don't mean like Scottish fairies I mean like when you think about how Americans eat versus how Europeans eat hmm. right you like pull in you grunt your number to this drink number two <laughs> extra lot right yeah. um there's no like there's there's nothing sexy about that. And you think about like you know midday break in Spain. Like, alright, we're gonna have two hours, we're gonna go have tapas, we're gonna get some nice Chianti and some port, and we're gonna sip that mm-hmm. while, you know, our waiter or waitress brings us multiple small plates that we share and you have like a bite and it just like tickles your tongue. Or like the French coming up with the amuse bouche. Mm-hmm. Like what is that? It's like like let's amuse your mouth. Like let's yeah, yeah. tickle your mouth before yeah. this, right? So like there even, there is like a mysticism there. Oh, even or it's like a ritual, a transcendence. Yeah, it, it's it's a supposed rec- to be bigger than you, right? A recognition that eating it I, is an opportunity to participate in the transcendent. Yeah, yeah. Like it's it's not just about calorie intake, right? Right. And Americans I find for the most part it's like calorie intake. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and so there, like, there is a spiritualism, and I mean, I'm using food obviously because I'm a chef, but like, mm-hmm. there is like, there's something to it. Like, like I sit down at a at a night, like it just changes everything when you go to a fine dining establishment. Not that you have to spend a thousand, but it's just like when you have to slow and like the 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 most transcendent experience I've ever had, I think, um, was eating at WD fifty for my friend Kurt's thirtieth birthday party. Um, he's a foodie, so we drove all the way to New York City to eat at a Michelin star restaurant. Doesn't exist anymore because the rent got so high he had to close. But it was Wiley Dufresne, who's a molecular gastronomist. We got the tasting menu. It was thirteen courses. It was like four and a half hours. Uh, everyone at the table, like the the deal is like if one person ordered, everyone had to order it because they're not. Mm-hmm. Um, we had like six waiters. When you got up to go to the bathroom and came back, you had a new napkin refolded into a different like animal shape. The, the like the first course was a New York bagel with cream cheese, but he's a molecular gastronomist, so it was actually bagel flavored ice cream and cream <laughs> cheese that had be, that he had gotten crispy, so that it was like a crunchy wow. bagel. So it was like wow. the opposite, uh, and everything was like that. Like we had free dries foie gras that had like a mango gelée inside. Um, there was it was called like leftover. Um, like your fridge leftovers or something I forget the exact name 
but it was supposed to be like country fried chicken mashed potato leftovers. Sounds and it was fantastic. Like, it was like squab. It was like all these plays on all these things. Uh-huh. And you get to like the 12th course and you're like, I'm full. I could not possibly have one more. And I don't know. Are you, you're probably familiar with Monty Python movies. Uh-huh. Right? You know, the meaning of yep. life where like they, yep. it's just a thin mint. Well, like they essentially come out and they're like, <laughs> they're like, here's chocolate leather. They're like, you know, you've probably had fruit leather. They're like, Wiley Dufresne's the only person in the world who's figured out how to make chocolate leather at that point in time. So that it actually felt like fruit leather, but it was chocolate. And we're like, oh, we can't. And they're like, just trust us. So where is this? It was in New York City. It doesn't okay. exist anymore. Yeah. Um, but they're like, just trust us. And you're like, I'm really full. Like, I've just had 12 courses over four and a half hours. And they're like, and you have like that one, one more bite. And it was like, you're like, okay, now I'm actually full. <laughs> like, like, everything was time, like, absolute uh, perfection. Yeah. And it was... And then, like, you end and you go back into the city. And it's just, like, you just went from this, like, really holistic, spiritual, you know, like, everyone's eating the same thing and it's whimsical. Uh-huh. Right? And, uh-huh. and literally magical. And you're doing it together. Yeah. Like, you're having a shared experience. Right. right. And I have no idea how many calories I ate that day. Probably 8,000 because I worked in fine dining. And I know, uh-huh. like, like uh-huh. the reason my food tastes better than yours is, like, lots of butter and lots of salt. Right. Because fine dining cooks don't care about your cholesterol. <laughs> right. 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 Um, and you just, like, think about that experience versus even, like, you know, when I was on vacation with my kids, like, going to an Applebee's. It was great. It was fine. We hadn't been in a restaurant in two and a half years, so that was kind of exciting. Uh-huh. But it's still, like, oh, like, quick order. Like, they're here. What do you want to drink? You're like, I just sat down. Give me, give me a second. But they also know, like, you know what's on the Applebee's menu. Uh-huh. Coke, Diet Coke, Sprite, beer. Uh-huh. Right, you're not like, oh, could I could I look at a list of your micro brews on tap this week, or yeah, <laughs> you know, like like what vintage wine do you have that will pair well with my <laughs> my cheesy fries? Yeah, They're like we got Franzia. <laughs> <laughs> that makes that makes me think that um, that's really that that makes me think. Uh, we had a brief pause there, uh, just like. Some people could view all that as snobbery, but I I don't see what you're saying saying that as all. Like that that's trying to give people an experience yeah. around something that's universal. Right. Which is food. Just the same thing that you have like at concerts. I think that's what you mean when you say mysticism. That's that's the magic of it, I think. You get people together and you say we're here and this is the central purpose and everybody in the room kinda knows like we're here. You're right. The American restaurant system doesn't doesn't provide right. that feel at all. Yeah, and um, like you know, I, I think you're right. Like it can sound snobby because I'm like, oh, Wiley Dufresne, Michelin star. Yeah, dude, I, there are some street taco vendors around here where I can have the exact same experience. Uh huh. Right. So I'm not like, oh, you have to spend a thousand dollars and you have to sit down and like, no. But it's also like, Applebee's is Applebee's is Applebee's. It's fine. Yeah, it does the job. You know, I occasionally I'll eat McDonald's even with my gluten allergy and like suffer the consequences because it's delicious. Mm-hmm. But it's not the same experience. It's like I'm on the road. I need to get to where I'm going. I, my belly's like, yeah. I'm not sitting like you don't go to McDonald's with a bunch of friends and sit down. I mean, maybe back in the day when they had the real play structures and stuff, yeah. you know, yeah. like the ball pits and all that. But you're not like, oh, let's let's go spend. T- if you were spent two hours in a McDonald's after you ate, like. <laughs> Talking with people and they'd be like, "Get out!" <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Uh, Tom Segura has this bit about Whataburger, mm-hmm. which no In and Out Burger. Okay, one of those West Coast ones. Okay, that, that 
us on the East Coast don't know about. And and he's like, if you've never been to an In-N-Out Burger, uh, you need to get your crap together. What's wrong with you? Uh, but he he says In-N-Out Burger. Uh, <laughs> I won't, I can't replicate it. But basically, he's like, when you pull up to the drive-through, um, asks the like the most confrontational like mean question that could be asked of you and I love it and he goes, he goes so you order your food at the drive-thru you you pull up and the girl at the window says or the, or the guy at the window says uh, will you be eating in your car <laughs> <laughs> he's just like shame just watches over here you're like and he's like very sheepishly he's like yes <laughs> and then they give you a tray put your food on <laughs> in your car and uh you know it's just it's hilarious it's this confirmation so like, just a quick tangent before i yeah i promise we can bring this back um when mcdonald's opened the first drive-thrus in china there were never drive-thrus before and like you can google this story and look at the images and the videos because it's um so nobody knew how to use it so <laughs> mcdonald's just assumed people know how to use drive-thrus but china had never had drive-thrus so people were waiting in line in the drive-thru, getting their food, parking their car, and taking the food back into the McDonald's to eat it. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Because they had no concept of, like, just get the food and shove it in your mouth in the car because it's a different culture. Right. And maybe they didn't have a concept of eating as purely... Yes. Right. Yeah. Like pragmatic. Yeah. Yeah, so they were standing like it was the first drive-through. So hours wait like, for no, people to I try to decide this time to eat. Like I'm not trying to. <laughs> yeah. This is I'm not worried about convenience. Yeah, right. Yeah. So so back to sort of like Jesus mysticism, Judaism, <laughs> Schopenhauer. Um, so I think in, there's a lot of things like that where Americans are just not as mystical, and they want like the box, the pragmatic. And I think American, even you know, back to oh crap. My political science is, is waning right now. Um, but, you know, you, you, to the back of the, found, the foundation of America, there was this American exceptionalism. And it was basically that Americans are pragmatic unlike any other nation. Um, so pragmatism doesn't lend itself very well to waiting, to sitting, to dialogue. Yeah. Right? Um, so if you have sort of this... This idea that you put out that, you know, maybe Western Christianity is dogmatic because it's sort of gotten rid of mystery. Um, I think that makes sense because the the pragmatist in the American needs to know the answer now. And I think that's partially why um, when Tristan dialogues with us, hey, Tristan, like, there's, like, a frustration between you and me sometimes with Tristan because, like, Catholicism is a little more mysticism, even, I think, more mystic than you in some ways. Mm. Um, so what feels very slippery to me anyway is just like not not dogma they're like well there's this big dogma up here but the way it plays out in real life could go A or B and I'm like no 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 like <laughs> you gotta fill the box man and they're like no we don't have boxes and I'm like what do you mean you don't have boxes you, who doesn't have boxes you mean my, my point of view yeah like, anyone <laughs> or, huh well, but you you were recognizing the 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 importance of transcendence, yeah. Just earlier, and sure, like in something as simple as food, which which I actually think is grand because 
it's like to me that is where that that is a place that we often forget to search for transcendence is in the mundane but ancient cultures and eastern cultures especially up to this day as you were pointing out even western european cultures are uh look look at that that meal time as something yeah essentially sacred um ironically jesus did too well yeah the <laughs> right? like, well the first like the whole yeah exactly like the first ritual is like here's a meal exactly and, i mean jesus first miracle if you know and for my atheist friends <laughs> We're just granting that the Gospels are accurate for, for the, the sake, sake of, of conversation. Argument. Right? First miracle? Ah, here's some wine. Yeah. At a wedding. Yeah. Like, right. Yeah. And it's not grape juice, Southern Baptists. I'm sorry. It's, it's wine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus had some, like, Kool-Aid packets right? in his back pocket. <laughs> it's a magic trick. <laughs> uh, but... So, yeah, opens his ministry with yeah. wine... Yeah, and, the and fir- closes his ministry with a meal. This, and the central celebration of the first century church was the Lord's Supper, and it wasn't an add-on thing right. that you did at the end or in the middle of a service once a month or once a week. Um, it was the entire gathering. Like, church was was gathered, was a meal. Church was a meal. Yeah. First, first century of, of the church. And part of the scandal of it was that like at this one table uh were sitting Jews and Gentiles, Roman soldiers and peasants, women and children and men and yeah, you know, all the all these nationalities and um coming together to to eat together and to and to say that Jesus's body and blood um was part of that consumption as well. But I, I think they tapped into something universal, or maybe even vice versa. Um, but uh, in that gathering around a table and sharing an event together, it doesn't even have to be an ideology, right? Yeah, that's the beauty. It's like you're not coming around a table, even as Christians, two thousand years get two thousand years later. Even if you think you are, you're not coming to a place or around a table to um, affirm each other's ideology or worldview. Like, you're coming to have a shared experience. Hmm. Um, at least that's what it's supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I <clears throat> I would say that they, they tapped into something universal. And, I mean, clearly, um, if you're to believe the, the New Testament, they stole Passover, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> there, it, it, you know, they appropriated it, for yeah, sure. Yeah. For sure. Um, which, like, you know, there's a... I have some Jewish friends, and, like, first off, like, every three weeks there's, like, a Jewish holiday. Mm-hmm. Like, they re, like they just know how to do it. They're like, yeah, well, Every three weeks there's a feast in in uh, Catholicism. Yeah. In, in Eastern um, Orthodoxy. Right. Well, so... <laughs> um, I don't know if this is true or not, but some of my liberal friends were passing around a meme that said uh, peasants in the early middle ages had more holidays than today because the papacy and the ruling elite knew that 
the peasants needed time off or they'd become <laughs> disillusioned and rebel. <laughs> so they were just like, ah, fe- Feast of St. Nicholas! Ah, Feast of St. Joseph! Ah, Feast of... And they just like, hey, have another party! Everyone stop working for a day. Yeah. Just go get drunk. It's cool. Yep. Um, yep, there's a modern version of that. It's like, uh, it's International Siblings Day. Right. right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, you know, lots of feasts in the Old Testament, feasts in the New Testament, you know, Islam, like... I think we're still in Eid. Are we still in Eid? I think we are. Um, you know, like, that whole thing focused around fasting and breaking yeah. your fast, and, you know, it's a celebration every yep. night, and, um, you know, all cultures. Like, yep. there, there is... I, we started with German philosophy, and now we're just talking food. That's great. Uh, I love it, because I think, I think it pertains. Um, but... And, oh, and ironically... The Buddhist will be the one who isn't feasting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Right. Or at least the devout monks, because they're... Right. Yep. But also even in, you know, even in Eastern cultures, there's there's this very ritualized um, way of, uh, of doing meals. Uh, I just had a friend who's a, who's a Buddhist over couple couple months ago and I told him um he's like really into tea <laughs> uh I was actually gonna ask and to and in my mind I'm like okay you're into tea I'm into coffee I don't know why they're the same thing <laughs> but being into tea is a completely different thing than yeah. being into coffee like being into coffee is like very western right in a way yeah <laughs> if I could be a little cheeky like you know it's just like I when I talk about coffee, like I talk about acidity, yeah. and I talk about body. People that are into tea don't talk about the tea; they talk about how to drink the tea, yeah. and when to sip, and how to make it. And so I thought when we were coming over for like a quote unquote tea party, which isn't what we called it, but essentially <laughs> what it was, it was like coming over for a tea party. I thought that it was going to be like he was going to tell me about teas like why he prefers Oolong, this tea to that tea and that kind of yeah. stuff and that I would learn all that but he wasn't even into that he's like whatever tea you like you like it's what you like it's if you like black tea that's fine if you like herbal tea that's cool what he really wanted to talk about was how long to steep it how to pour it and like when to drink it so like stuff like having to wait for a very particular amount of time in between, like, sip one and sip two because you needed to, like, meditate on what, <laughs> like, that yeah. first sip meant made me... I quickly realized when he came over that he, that we... I thought that I invited my friend over to, to an informal event to hang out, but he was under the impression that I was inviting him to formally teach me <laughs> about tea. And it was a religious experience. Yeah. And it, and it was just tea. Yeah. But well, so it was way more than tea. You know, what's fascinating is when you look into the history of tea in China and Japan, especially, like their preparation for tea time starts like two hours before, yeah. if not like days. But like it, like you said, it's it's about like the temperature has to be exactly two hundred and ten degrees. Mm-hmm. Like because if it's two twelve, you're gonna burn the tea, and it's got to steep depending on the type of tea. Five minutes, seven minutes, like precise, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you pulled it like you know. When I watch Americans take their Lipton tea bag and just leave the bag in the cup, 
Because, like, at heart, I'm a foodie. And, I like, some of the yeah. rituals, but I'm like, I'm like, no, there's a right way to do stuff. And I'm like, right. no, like, take that bag out. After, after two minutes, Americans, if you're using a tea bag, two minutes, pull the bag out. Don't squeeze it either. All the stuff <laughs> in there that, that were, like, you don't want the, the stuff that's in the tea. Like, just take the bag out, throw it away. It doesn't matter how wet it is. Right. That's what you're, like, and that's, if you're using loose leaf, it's completely different. But, yeah, there's, like, we're American, though. We don't do that. Mm-hmm. Right, we want our box. We want our quick, our calorie fill, our caffeine. And we want to yeah. get the crap out. See, I think it's interesting that you're relating this to Americanism. <laughs> to, I mean, we haven't said the word, but American consumerism. I think consumerism yeah. is like kind of what we're talking about, which is a part of I think who we are. Um, and unfortunately, we are in, uh, exporting it all around the world. That yeah. that kind of consumerism and that that part of our culture that. That I don't like, although there's a lot of things about Americanism that I actually do like. I don't want to crap on America. Yeah, I mean, I love our TVs and movies. And... Yeah, we <laughs> we have the we have some of the best artists these days, and um, and uh, I don't know. There's, but even just like our you know our libertarian independent streak, um, <laughs> give or take. There's you know, there's always give or take with those some things. I, there's some things about Americanism that, that I really like, but that seems like a whole other episode. What I wanted, <laughs> what I wanted to say is that because, because I think because I'm a Christian and have been basically a professional theologian, although a lay theologian, uh, I've been a minister, so that, you know, and been studying theology for pretty much 20 years. Like, I just have such a broader... Um, like framework mm-hmm. for for this stuff, because I don't think of Catholicism as like Catholicism is not as American as Protestantism is in my mind. Yeah. Um, Though there is a form of American Catholicism that's consumerist, I think. Sure. Like, like yeah, a lot of my cultural Catholic friend, like yeah, they go. Maybe Christmas Mass, probably Easter. Yeah. Their kids are definitely in CCD. Yeah. Which is funny because they're not going to regular church, our Mass. They're like dropping their kids off for Sunday school CCD to get con- confirmed. Uh huh. And like, and and partially they've said, well, like Grandma's not going to give a check <laughs> unless they're confirmed. I'm like, if that isn't consumerism, like pimp your kids out. So, I mean, I mean, they're not pimping their kids out because their kids are the ones getting the money in the end. But yeah, yeah, right. And then there are like. So that that seems like a an American Catholicism. Like I, again, I haven't traveled to South America, but I can't imagine mm-hmm. the average Brazilian mm-hmm. going to mass simply so their kid can get CCD and then stopping. Mm-hmm. That may be changing. Yeah, I wouldn't. It, I wouldn't know. I and I get your point. What what I was getting at was um, this this obsession with dogma. I think existed before America existed within yeah within western Christianity especially yeah um and it's manifested in the in even even the way they thought about theological disputes is interesting in in that we're going to have this debate and somebody's going to win so it's going we're going to have this debate about the trinity somebody's going to win this debate and that debate is called such and such council. Yeah. Right. And then 
the winner is essentially they don't put it this way but the winner is declared and now here is the doctrine as stated by the council of Nicene or Athanasius or so on and so forth and now you know this is heresy and this is orthodoxy Mm -hmm. and there's this very you know straight line now um now orthodoxy is not exactly the same thing as capital T truth there's a little bit of like wiggle room there where where it's not as if these discussions can't come up again and can't be there can't be revisions and there can't be rethinking uh but but that's very different than say um Judaism which is basically like put it all in (laughs) <laughs> right, like put the whole debate in, and and um, and we'll show you we'll show you the dialogue, and both both of those things will be part of the both of those things will be part of the Talmud. So the so the debate continues, yeah. um, and uh, so I just wonder if there's a relationship between this idea that Jesus is the end of the law. Potentially meaning Jesus is the end of con- like mm-hmm. end of conversation. I'm not stating that as dogma. I yeah, don't. Yeah. I don't want to get any pushback, like accusations that I'm pushing towards relativism. Yeah. I'm just thinking out loud. Yeah. Um. So, so you you know what I'm getting at, right? Yeah. Like, there's this relationship between this idea. Okay, Jesus is the solution to this particular problem, mm-hmm. and Christianity's Christianity's historical. Um, Obsession with getting the doctrine right, and I think the difference. I think Protestantism and Catholicism share that "quote unquote" obsession, which is a strong word. The difference is is that Protestantism rejects the magisterium, and so is not as bound to the creeds. And this idea of sola scriptura, um, and that's a whole other like theological problem because then it's like well if the scriptures the authority but we have to debate about what it means how how strong is right. that authority right. well and um cover your children's ears i'm not going to swear but um you know one of the the snarkier atheists i follow posted a thing is like you know the difference between horseplay and pony play is so striking that we should have zero confidence that we understand translating ancient texts. <laughs> um, and if you don't know what pony play is, maybe look it up with Google safety on. If you, <laughs> yeah. Um, but, like, they're the same... They're, like, essentially showing how bad translation can be, right? Um, or how how nuanced it can be. Because there mm-hmm. are probably English listeners who don't know the difference between horse play and, horse play and pony play. Yeah. And now you're going back 2,000 years... To this ancient text, you're not an original Hebrew, right. Aramaic, or Greek speaker, Middle Greek, mm-hmm. um, and now you come across this phrase that says horseplay. Well, does it? <laughs> right. right. So, like, yeah, there is a problem with sola scriptura there. Well, um, th- yeah. And there's what you know, sort of to wrap that up. One of the things I was thinking because I, I wasn't even thinking going back as far as Athanasius and Nicene um, is you know sort of American American evangelicalism has this obsession with you know capital T truth in the right boxes and everything and I where it feels like you're saying and I think it feels like 
other flavors of Christianity and or geographical locations of even evangelical Christianity are a little less concerned about ticking exactly all the right boxes. Like, there's the right box of, like, Jesus was God, he rose from the dead, you know, like, the mag- yeah, the magisterium says this is the, the meaning of this text, but it's not sort of like this fundamentalism, and yeah. I wonder if that's because um, Europe went through it with a lot of, hundreds of years of bloody wars mm-hmm. and people being tortured and burned, and they were mm-hmm. like, you know what? F it. Like, yeah. my neighbor is more important than whether the Pope is God's emissary or if we should be part of the Church of England. Like, yeah. let's just... And America didn't go through all of that. In fact, while Europe was burning, like, <laughs> the pilgrims were like, hey, let's go let's go over here. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so, very uniquely, we start off as a Protestant religious... And not just a Protestant one. Like, yeah. Separatists. Right. Right, the conservatives are the ones yeah. who came. Yeah, and they're like, we can do our thing over here without being right. bothered. So Europe's burning. Legit, the Inquisition is still going on. There mm-hmm. are witch. I mean, we have some witch trials here in Salem, mm-hmm. but very quickly, people are like, let's not do that again. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's a whole different like slide. So American can be more fundamentalist because it didn't have the problems that Europe faced with fundamentalism. Plus, uh, and I'm agreeing with you. Plus. Uh, with this this new frontier, not as if you know there there weren't uh, Native Americans living on the plains, but that's not the way that the I don't think that's the way that the early colonists right. saw it. They just saw like open fields essentially. Yeah, and and so these open fields, um, like if you were in North Carolina and um, the religion that you grew up and loved was like you know, going liberal, <laughs> like going progressive, you're like, I'm going to move to Missouri. Right. And start my own denomination there. Yeah. And uh, there's this relationship with... Or between, or Boston Bay kicks you out. Yeah. You're like, Roger Williams, you're a heretic. He's like, cool, I have Rhode Island now. Right. Or William Penn's like, here's Pennsylvania. Like, legit. States exactly. were founded. Exactly. And there's this <laughs> relationship between the the American idea of freedom and um, and religion. And and we're still uh, in the midst of those kinds of culture wars, and maybe that's a yeah good place to stop. Yeah, well, and <laughs> you know, and, and it's ironic that to me that we have lost our mysticism amidst that. Let's talk about that on the next episode. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, thanks for listening, everyone. We hope you're having a good week, staying cool. I think there's another heat wave coming. Is there? Yeah, there, there is. Fun times. Mm. Not as bad as Europe, which like melted last last week. Yeah, like France is on was on fire. Yeah, and the world is on fire, right? Yeah. Okay. Um. <laughs> <laughs> on that happy note. Yeah. <laughs> have a great week. <laughs>